You need to forget about all the normal rules that apply to both college and society. This episode is going to be focused on another one of our favorite bands from from the 70s, Aerosmith. And Josh and I have been talking about doing an Aerosmith show for a long time and we really haven't we've we've mentioned them occasionally uh throughout the last several episodes, but we've never really dove into their discography or their background or that kind of thing. So we kind of thought it would be fun to give Aerosmith the deharmonizing treatment. So we can jump right in. We were uh, one of the things that we were also going back and forth about was our first memories of Aerosmith, and I remember the very first time that I had any kind of conscious knowledge of Aerosmith was when I saw the Run DMC video for "Walk This Way," which came out in 1986, I think 1985, 1986, right around there. It was on their "Raising Hell" album which is a great album. If anyone um, hasn't heard that, that's a great pickup. Go check that one out. It's pretty good from start to finish. But the you know the featured song on that album, of course, was Walk This Way. And before I even owned that album, I had seen the video, and I remember there were these two rockers in the video who were Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. And I remember looking at them in that video thinking, man, I'm supposed to know who these guys are. They look really familiar. But... There was no way to, I didn't know. And this is back before internet and before that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until maybe a, a year or two later when their, um, when their big sort of um, comeback album, I mean, they had their other comeback album done with Mirrors, but Permanent Vacation was the real comeback album. And that one had Ragdoll, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, and a bunch of other great songs on it. When that album came out, then I was like, okay, that's those guys were from Aerosmith. I thought it was a joke um, because of the way Steven Tyler was acting. Um, I thought they were like a joke band or just like they were hired by Run DMC because I had no knowledge that this song was actually an Aerosmith song. And because they weren't identified, I was like, oh, that's funny. Like he would, he like Steven Tyler busts through the wall and he's like, walk this way. And his, his uh, mouth is real big. <laughs> he just looks like, you know, he's kind of goofy looking, really. I mean, so I, I was like, oh, that's funny. That's because that was around the time of Weird Al. So I was like, I was like, there's lots of funny music out right now. 
you know. Well, they were doing a lot of bits with videos around that time where they would have like a an intro to the video and there would be like almost a skit. Something goofy, goofy skit or something, yeah. Yeah, I remember David Lee Roth did that a lot with his videos, remember? <laughs> yeah, just a gigolo. Well, there would always be like about a 30 or 45 second pre-video little little scene. I used to love that, man. That's a, that's great memories of videos Yo, in the down, 80s. Man. Turn that noise down, man. Yo, what's up with this? Turn it down, boy. Come on, man. Later, you were into them first, and I knew their hits, obviously, because um, they were everywhere by that time. And so you and I, but probably closer to the, our teenage years, really started getting into them. And you know, that's when I was really heard much of what they, or at least a, a full album's worth of stuff from their their debut album. I bought that on cassette. You know what? You know, before we go on, what's the what's the story behind the video? It was a Rick Rubin idea, and Rick Rubin had... Rick Rubin, of course, the awesome, famous music producer who's... Man, he's yeah, done Beastie, Beastie Boys, Boys Red Hot Chili Peppers, Aerosmith. He's done... Yeah, and he had always been a fan of Aerosmith, and when he was doing... He did uh, Run DMC's second album, which is Raising Hell. He had, he had in his head of bringing more of a hard rock guitar kind of vibe to some of their songs and he I think it was really his brainchild to put Aerosmith and Run DMC together and at this time though it was really an interesting period of time in Aerosmith's history they had broken up at the beginning of the 80s uh, actually uh, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford had left a couple albums even before that so the band was pretty much in five different directions. Steven Tyler was living in a hotel room and wasn't even, you know, wasn't doing anything music related. And it was eventually they got back together uh, closer to the mid 80s. And Rick Rubin basically called them up and said, would you want to come be on this Run DMC, al- uh, Run DMC song? We're doing a cover of Walk This Way and we'd love it if you know, y'all could come and add some vocals and Joe Perry ended up bringing his guitar as well and ended up recording some guitar onto it. And then of course, Steven does a duet with Jam Master J and Run. <laughs> Run. Uh, he does a duet with Run DMC. It's now sort of pointed to as a, uh, you know, one of the first times you were able to merge hip hop with rock. It's, it's th- sort of thought as a pioneering song, but 
at the time, they just thought they were going to add vocals to a song and they were going to pick up a nice big check because at this point, Steven Tyler was on a, an allowance. So he didn't even, the, the record company was giving him money very carefully and slowly because of his drug habit. And Joe Perry was uh, also broke at the time or pretty close to it. So they did it for the money. Yeah, I remember watching uh, like a behind the scenes years ago, you know, and Steven Tyler was kind of talking to some interviewer and he was saying, you know, I've always hated the whole black and white thing, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, hated the, the tension, race tensions and stuff like that. But it's like, from what you're saying, it sounds like they were like, yeah, whatever. I mean, let's just go do it and get some cash. Run DMC wanted no part of it. It was Rick Rubin who wanted it. No, nobody else wanted to be involved. Aerosmith wanted to do it for the money. Run DMC didn't know, didn't even know who they were, but they did it as sort of like, okay, well, let's just see what happens. And then, of course, it becomes a big hit, and then everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, we planned it that way all along. But that, <laughs> that's not quite how it worked. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and so like, so Permanent Vacation. It was funny we were talking about it earlier. Permanent Vacation was not an album that I really liked. I liked a couple of the songs on it, but it wasn't until Pump that came out, I guess about a year later after Permanent Vacation, that was the one that really broke through for me. And then, of course, the making of Pump video, the documentary that first was on MTV, that was the big one for me. That was the album that I was like, okay, this album, this this band is great. And then I went back and bought all their early 70s stuff from 73 all the way through 79. I bought, uh, well, I didn't buy the debut. You bought the debut, but I bought Get Your Wings, Toys in the Attic, Draw the Line, Rocks, and then Night in the Ruts. So I started really consuming all their 70s stuff and tried some of their 80s stuff, but didn't really like it in the same way. And then Get a Grip came out maybe a year or two after that, after I'd gotten into Pump. And get a grip. I didn't really, didn't really catch on. I owned it and I listened to it a lot, but there was a lot of filler on that album. They had some hit, the, the hits were okay. Yeah, they had um, what you call it, uh, living on the edge and eat the rich. Remember, eat yeah. the rich, eat the yeah. rich. Yeah, I mean, a couple songs that were good, but for the most part, I, I always thought of it as a lot of filler. And the other thing that we didn't, we haven't talked about yet, is that you and I were also just learning to play the guitar around this time. So a lot of those songs like Last Child, um, Adam's Apple from Toys in the Attic, some of the songs on this first album that we're going to talk about, a lot of those songs were my first entree into guitar playing. And we did this with Kiss also. But those two bands, plus the Beatles, were really the bands that taught me how to play guitar. Yeah, like um, you and I were talking about it, chatting about moving out from the first album. And that riff that starts that out... I've been playing that riff since I first listened to that album. Uh, it just caught my ear, and I, and I was trying to learn how to play. I was like, that sound, doesn't sound too hard. Um, huge influence. Mama Ken, I mean, I, I used to play that riff over and over again because I just thought it was so good, and, and a lot of their other stuff in there is pretty awesome. Walking the Dog was another one I learned how to play. Walking the Dog, yeah. So I'll tell you what, let's, let's, let's just kind of give a quick overview of the album it was their again their first major label release they released it on columbia records in january of 1973 a full year before kiss would release their debut album which of course came out in february of 74 if you listen to our last episode and the album is pretty straightforward there's eight songs and 
they do about seven different they do seven originals and they do one cover when you bought the tape you had the tape uh before i did i remember that cover looked so weird to me yeah it's really bad it, it, it's I'm so not even bad sure what the goal was <laughs> i don't yeah i don't know what it's supposed to be it's like this square photo of them and it's they're in the clouds and it's before they came up with their wings logo because eventually they would have the wing the wing logo mm-hmm. and they would do that but i don't get it it's weird looking you know the picture of them that square picture of them has has clouds behind them and then they they don't match they put that in they don't match they put that into kind of similar clouds but it it doesn't match like there's no it's not like superimposed as if they're floating. Yeah, they couldn't so air. Really... They couldn't even airbrush the square to bl- yeah, to blend like it I, into the other clouds. It's... I have no clue what the why that was, and then the font is. Yeah, it looks like really cheap. It's like anything that that you could find available. You yeah, know, you know, for free. <laughs> it's like just do and that. I guess. I guess. I mean, who knows? They the the label probably just was like, let's just get it out. You know. They're not going to spend a ton of money on a band they don't know is going to perform yet, so they probably were just like, you know, right. just put it, put the album out and let's see how it does. But right. I guess probably the breakout hit would have been "Dream On," but um, I don't have. Do you have the numbers in front of you about how high you know "Dream On" charted? The story goes that "Dream On" was a big hit off this album, but it wasn't. They released three singles from this album. They released "Mama Ken," that was the one that was used to promote the album. That was released in January of '73. Then Dream On was released about six months later in June of 73. So that's how much they thought of Dream On. It wasn't even the lead single from the album. And Mama Ken didn't chart at all. The Dream Dream On in 73 got to 60, got to 59 on the Billboard Hot 100. So that means nobody heard it. And it wasn't until Dream On was reissued after the success of Toys in the Attic and Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way that Dream On became an actual hit and it got into the top 10 of the singles charts, got to number six. But yeah, once again, just like we talked about with Kiss, the you know the first couple albums, first few singles didn't do anything until they had their big breakthrough album. For Aerosmith, it was Toys in the Attic and for Kiss, of course, it's Alive. Um, and then that's, and that's when the, and that's when the back catalog stuff starts to sell once they've, you know, once they've broken through. I think it's funny how you can record a song and it, and it's out, it's even put out as a single. And then years later, something happens where people go back and then it becomes a hit again. Like, like it becomes a hit much later. It seems like a weird concept and it just goes to show you how much promotion and hype have to do with having a hit. Like, you know, Dream On was always the same song. So why didn't it like pick up steam or why didn't it like word of mouth do anything? But for some reason, once Aerosmith gets bigger with other albums, now it's like, oh, well, now we'll go. But now it's a hit. If you don't have a hit right away, then you're done nowadays. Yeah. One of the things that's really weird about this album is Steven Tyler's singing voice. He was trying to affect a blues singer's voice. He hadn't found his voice yet he had tried a couple different things actually his voice was even different um on his previous band chain reaction if you've ever heard chain reaction he sounds like he's trying to do a a, um a british invasion kind of thing yards yard birds kinks kind of thing so he sounds really 
sound anything like Steven Tyler. On this album, he doesn't sound like Steven Tyler either, except for one song, and that's Dream On. You know, I had that room inside of our game room uh, growing up, and we were listening to it. I think we were just sitting on the floor. I think the cassette was in like one of those jam box things. And, uh, you know, I was making a face like, that's weird. His voice sounds weird. And you kind of imitated me like you were making fun of me. Cause I was, I guess my face was like real scrunched up or something. You were like, I still remember that. I was like, oh yeah, sorry. I don't know why I was reacting that way. But I was like, it's weird. His voice is weird. It's like, why does it sound that way? And it was just like, we were just like, I don't know. You know, we didn't have the internet, so we couldn't look it up. Yeah. We were really good about imitating each other and making fun of each other back in those days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. We can't let each other get too high, (laughs) you know, because. No mercy. No mercy. Can you give me an inch here? Why do you have to make fun of me right now? I was trying to make a point. No, no, no. There was, it was like just a joke was just waiting to just hit you over the side of the head. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Well, you know, that was the thing that I was just like, I just thought, I, th- I just thought it was really young. That's what I thought. Like he's just young and he hadn't ripped his voice to shreds yet with screaming and drugs and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's probably just, you know, it's probably, he's probably just being young. And I, honestly, uh, I don't know if you can look that up, but how old were they when they recorded this album? They were probably anywhere from, 20 to 24, 23, 22, something like that. So they were all super young. Steven Tyler might have been 21 when that first yeah. album. Well, he was actually a little bit older. I'm looking at it now. He was about 25 yeah, when that first young. album came out. Uh, Joe Perry was 23. So, yeah, they're all about, you know, they're all in their early, early 20s. Um, I found a quote from Steven Tyler talking about this album. He says, in his autobiography, Tyler recalls, the band was very uptight. We were so nervous that when the red recording light came on, we froze. We were scared. I changed my voice into the Muppet Kermit the Frog to sound more like a blues singer. So the album was not a success either. Uh, it, it didn't even get reviewed by Rolling Stone. The only time they would get com- uh, reviewed, they would just get compared to the Rolling Stones and the New York Dolls. And it was not a very, they would never be, there were never very nice comparisons. They were always kind of like, um, sort of made, they were compared in kind of a, um, like like making fun of them, I guess. Like it wasn't a nice compliment to get, they would basically say they were just uh, copycats or ripoffs. But I guess I can hear that. I can hear the similarities to the Rolling Stones, but I don't hear it, I don't know. I don't hear it like everybody else hears it, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't either. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I just don't, I don't know if I hear the similarities. I mean, they're both rock. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't hear the song writing isn't the same I don't even know if Keith Richards can play like that. So I don't, I don't ever think about it. You know what I mean? I don't ever go like, that's the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't think Steven Tyler's voice sounds that much like Mick Jagger. Not at all. I don't really hear it at all. No. Got a, he's got a big mouth <laughs> like Mick Jagger. I think that was a lot of it is that they looked kind of similar, like their mouth. Yeah. Big ass mouth. <laughs> you want to do a little track by track? Let's do it. Yeah. Opens with Make It, which was 
it was released as a promo single, but it didn't get any airplay. And um, the opening line for a debut album, I guess it's a fitting. Good evening, people. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Do you think that was intentional? Do you think he, they did that and they were like, okay, this album is def- oh, this song is definitely going to lead off our first album? Like, would you think that was planned? Um, I don't know if the line was as far as putting it there, but... What do you think? I always kind of felt like that was intentional. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it would be because... And, and, I, and I like that concept a lot. I really do. Yeah. I really like how they're introducing themselves and it's like, hey, we're... Or at least trying to say we're a, new, we're a different band. We're going to do it this way. You know? Yeah. And so I like it, but I, I think it would have to have been intentional. Like, hey, we're going to go out there and we'll write this line in there. And then this will definitely open the album so we can, yeah. you know, make a big splash. Like, hey, we're coming in. Of course, it didn't make a big splash, but, <laughs> you know, uh, it, was worth a, it was worth a shot. I remember you, one of the things you said after you heard the album for the first time, you, were, you said, wow, I didn't realize Joey Kramer was such a good drummer. Yeah, he's, he's awesome in this. And, you know, uh, Make It is, is um, a great way to open the album. It's, it's got a, this whole album... There's a lot of hooks in the album. We always talk about hooks. Like, what is a hook? Well, it's something that that you can kind of remember pretty quickly, right? Like, you hear something once, maybe twice, you kind of go, oh, I remember that part. It feels familiar and I like it, right? So there's a lot of that going on. But really, before the 80s, they had more riff-oriented like uh, hooks. And this album, to me, is almost wall-to-wall. You know, if you talk about Make It as far as... Um, the the notes you know you can hear joe perry and uh, brad whitford they're playing something different that's joe perry and brad is playing it's like really they're really good at it you know i don't know how they figured it out but they're really trying to make different notes in there is that your example then of a hook yeah, I, oh yeah i would definitely say that's that's the first their their first their first hook that they're throwing out there and mm-hmm. um, then of course they've got the um, you know the you know i've got a lot of notes mm-hmm. in there but and it all works. It's like a pretty good one-two punch because the second song is Somebody, which ended up being the B-side to their Dream On single. Steven Tyler and his friend uh, Steven Emspach, which I don't, I don't know who that is. And then, and then, so then it goes right into the third song, which is Dream On. That's a pretty strong start. Yep. I don't know that it's the very first power ballad, but I can't think of a power ballad that came out before this one. Every time that I look in the mirror All these lines in my face getting clearer The past is Everybody's got the dues in life to pay. 
my opinion, it's it's definitely not the strongest song on the album. It's a good song, but it has a fairly maybe because it's I've heard so many ballads since. It's like you kind of go like, oh, there's probably so many songs like that, but you're probably right. It's probably one of the first, so that gives it a right. Yeah, I definitely think it's the best song on the album. Oh, oh, you do? Yeah, see, I, I, I don't. I definitely don't. But I think it's a good song, and the legacy, it has a long-lasting legacy. Um, you know, if I could fault Steven Tyler for anything, I think sometimes his lyrics are really cheesy and corny, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I mean, but Dream On, I think, has a pretty good set of lyrics. It's a great melody, and it's a great... I mean, all the instrumentation is really cool, and just the complex chord changes, and it's hard to it's hard to play, but the lyrics I think are actually really good, and he sings it really well too. He sings he sounds like Steven Tyler for for the first time on this song. at the uh, personnel so um, Steven Tyler has lead vocals keyboards harmonica flute when is there a flute is it when is there a flute on this album gosh I'd have to go back and and listen but um, I I know there's a couple songs that have different instruments there's one song (coughs) that I'm I'm almost I swear that he's playing a kazoo and I don't think it says it anywhere there might if you look it up there might be there and I'm trying to think of the song um, it's the song where he, uh, I, th- I think it's somebody, it's actually somebody, uh, when Joe Perry plays that solo and it sounds like Steven Tyler is singing and harmonizing, but it's not, it's not his voice. Yeah, yeah, that part. I swear he's using a kazoo because it has a very familiar... When I was a kid, and you probably had one too, every kid had a kazoo probably in the 80s, probably not now. But, uh, you know, we had a kazoo, so you're messing around, you can play Mm -hmm. any note because all you have to do is sing it. And then it has that sort of distorted after effect on it. I don't know how to describe it, but I kept hearing it, especially lately, and I was like, is he playing a kazoo? Because then his vocals come back in and it doesn't have it on there. So I'm like, I think he's playing... I'm pretty sure he's playing a kazoo. I want to know for real bad, but I bet I bet nobody knows. I bet it's not even on there. No idea, but I, I can't figure out where that flute might be coming from. It maybe it, I don't know if maybe maybe Dream On has flute in it. I don't know. I know it has like um, keyboards, a lot of keyboards, almost like a Mellotron or something going on in it. But I don't hear a flute. I don't think. I don't know. The next song is One Way Street. This one is a long one. Another one way street. That's that's Steven Tyler's attitude. Let's put it that way. That sort of like, um, you know, he just likes to he likes to scat. You know, this song always sounded like The Doors to me for some reason. It mm-hmm. sounded like um, Roadhouse Blues or something. I remember, so I heard this song after I'd heard Permanent Vacation, or I'd heard this album, this whole album, after Permanent Vacation, and there's one part in One Way Street that reminds me of Dude Looks Like a Lady. It's, um, 
it's that part towards the end. I think we're going. It does kind of sound like that part. But anyway, yeah. So that's that's a really good one. And so that's side one. That's how side one ends. It ends with One Way Street. Mama Ken. That's what opens side two. What a cool riff song, man. That's awesome. Pretty sure this was the first one I latched onto and learned. Um, and, um, you know, it kind of has a good, like, downward progression. You know, um, and uh, I like how it rolls right into a solo at the beginning. I think that's really cool, too. Yeah, it's kind of a, a unique way to do it because often we follow the, most everybody follows the, verse chorus verse chorus bridge you know solo or whatever it is and uh you know they just kind of roll right into a riff it's something that is it translates so well live like they almost always play this one live when i saw them they played this one just sounds so great on stage the lyrics are i don't know what the hell they mean guns and roses do a really cool version of this song i don't know if you've ever heard it it's on their gnr lies album oh yeah 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 i have it's been a while though i need to go back and listen to it which, by the way, we need to we need to do a Guns N' Roses show, so we should do that. Oh yeah, we definitely do. The next song is "Write Me." Man, that has some like really good Joey Kramer fills in it. Um, and this one, it's it's every song on this album, is, including this one, I, I think Dream On is a standout because it doesn't actually sound like any of the other songs. Because most of the time we're doing riffs, there's a little bit of blues, the that kind of thing. And this goes right back into that blues thing. You got harmonica. They've got a good knowledge. It seems, feels like they have a good knowledge of a lot of that of a lot of older bluesy music, um, and I think that has to do with Steven Tyler. His wasn't his his uh, father a musician? Yeah, he came from a musical background. Right, so he probably had 
um, a lot of knowledge of different kinds of music. And I'm sure just coming in and having that influence, he, he feels like he's they're completely in control of it, you know. And everything is pretty cohesive. We always talk about drawing a thread through an album. You know, it's like, what does it feel like from song to song? I think this album is very much a, a particular moment in time. Yeah, Dream On is the one that does, doesn't does fit with the other seven songs. Yeah, stands out, but in a good way. And then the next one is pretty common knowledge, but it was the very first song written by Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. It's Moving Out. Apparently that was the first song they ever wrote together. Steven Tyler tells the story. I think you had sent me an article about it. He was like, you know, look, if we're going to be in a band, we're going to have to write songs together. And so they got together and wrote this one and pretty good, pretty good first song to write together. It ended up making the first album. It's one that I've always really liked. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. They talk like they haven't done anything. They talk, oh, we, when the red light comes on, we were really scared. You know, this was the first song we ever wrote together and we had no songs together or whatever it was. That's what he was saying. You know, there's a clip of them playing it live just recently or starting to play it live or something and telling a story about it. And so... How do you have that much talent when you don't know what's going on? <laughs> like it's really kind of baffling. I think it just it just is, an, is a testament to how much raw talent they really had. I know, and I and I've always liked the part in the song when it goes into the so it goes into the when it kind of slows down. It's actually a kind of a throwback from something from the '60s. That's you were talking about the Doors. That that stuff really reminds me of that. They'll have a song and then they'll break down some other part, and it'll have Steven Tyler kind of following the mood a little bit differently. Um, I think they're also very good at that. So the album then closes with their first cover on an album. Of course, it's their first album, so it's the first cover on an album, Walking the Dog, which I had actually heard the Rolling Stones version first. I th- No, actually, no, that's not true. I had not heard the Rolling Stones version first. I didn't hear the Rolling Stones version until after I'd heard this one. Oh, wait, there's a flute in this song. Gosh, I, why can't I... During the solo. Is this the song that he played? Maybe so. How does the solo go? I'm, I'm like really blanking. I had no memory of <laughs> It's a flute. That's why you can't think of how the solo goes. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's 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 so cool that he can play that. Is he one of those guys that can pick up any instrument and just start playing it, I wonder? Yeah, I think he is. Because it's not like he, he took flute lessons, I'm pretty sure. No, he seems like the kind of guy that if you give him a Mellotron or a Calliope or a harmonica or an accordion or whatever, he'll be able to make it play. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that song is good. I think they do a good job on the cover. Um, who is it? The Rolling Stones, is it? Are they the original band that recorded it? No, uh, a guy named Rufus Thomas. Rufus Thomas, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, and I've, I, shame on me, I've never heard the original. I don't know why they put a cover on there. I don't know if they just 
you know, it's like you don't have one more song laying around. They probably didn't because, you know, as we talked about, they were just starting to really write together. But this also kind of set a precedent for every album that they would do would always end with a cover or there would always be at least one cover on the album. So like on Get Your Wings, I remember I noticed this when I started buying them. They would always have just one cover and uh, Get Your Wings, the cover was Train Kept a Rollin'. Toys in the Attic, the cover was Big 10-inch Record. Speaking of Big 10-inch Record, I don't really like that song. It's pretty goofy. It feels like they, they went off course. <laughs> I agree. Rocks does not have a cover. But then they get back to covers on their next album with Draw the Line, because that has Milk Cow Blues. And then Night in the Ruts has a cover that has Remember Walking in the Sand. That, that whole, Night in the Ruts is actually a really good album. It's you, you were right. You were telling me that. And I had heard it years ago. And then going back to it, I was like, no, it is a good it is a good album. It's just, I think they get a bad rap because everybody knows that they're on drugs. And it's not like they... I don't think the album's performed great. By that point, their albums were starting to do worse and worse. And I think when they got to that one, it was... And there is no sort of clear-cut hit. The other thing they would always do on albums, they'd always have a ballad. Like, I guess Dream On kind of started that trend because Get Your Wings has um, Seasons of Wither and then Toys in the Attic has You See Me Crying. Oh, man. I love Seasons of Wither. That song is so good. Yeah. um, And then You See Me Crying is the the ballad on Toys in the Attic. And then Rocks, the, the ballad is Home Tonight. And draw the line. Does draw? Yeah, draw the line has a ballad. Kings and queens. Mm-hmm. Kings and queens. Yeah. And then night in the ruts. The ballad would be Mia. They they would almost copy the same pattern for each album. You'd get one ballad, one cover, and then the rest of the songs would be written by Tyler and Perry. On night in the ruts, the song that I always really liked was Chiquita. Yeah, I just. I just listened to that the other day, but I can't remember how the riff goes. And actually, there's a second cover on Night in the Ruts. I forgot. They have, they cover a Yardbird song, too, on that one. And the more we talk about it, in some of the, the songs that they do, they really have a little bit of psychedel- psychedelia in them. You know, when they slow down on certain songs, just like we were talking about, um, uh, what was on the first album that we were talking about, the song where it slows down. Moving out. Yeah, on Moving Out, when they slow down... You can tell he has a lot of like psychedelic influences, so because it just it, every time I hear stuff like that, it makes it reminds me by Aerosmith. It always reminds me of more of the psychedelic period. So I love that stuff too. So Uncle Salty is a very psychedelic sounding song too. It is towards the end, you know, when they repeat that that line at the end yeah. that he always used to like. Yeah, yeah, I love that part. Yeah, um, and it would just repeat it over and over again. Very psychedelic. Yeah. Last Child is sort of close, right? That's true. Yeah, that opening part, the opening. Yeah. For the most part, they're not like a they're not like a radio friendly. If you go back to the 70s, they're not radio necessarily radio friendly. They're actually more concentrated riffs, you know, which is why I like them more because it makes them a little bit less commercial, you know, a little bit less like yeah! Oh, like, you know, I mean, I, I kind of like that stuff, you know, because it's so goofy and over the top. Obviously, we like Kiss, so we I can't necessarily be a hypocrite. But something about Aerosmith, I really like that they're when they're not that way, you know. Right. No, I agree. So this so this is your favorite album, the debut? The, the debut album? I, yeah, I, I still have to stick with that. Um, I do. I wish some things were different. I wish his voice was a little bit more Steven Tyler-ish. And, but, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever... Maybe maybe because I'm biased because it was the first one I really dove into. I love rocks though, and I really like Toys in the Attic. 
and I and Pump is a great album. It's, Get a Grip is okay, you know, and they have scattered hits even beyond that. They've got Don't Want to Miss a Thing, you know, which is the uh, Diane Warren song and everything. And, you know, they have this really odd ability to last, which is ridiculous. Like, how do you, how? Like, how could someone like that last? Like, they're still around. I don't know if they're really making hits now, but, I mean, they went all the way through grunge. And they didn't change, they didn't change what they did. No. They stayed the same. It's kind of like ACDC. It's like ACDC went through like five different decades of music and they're still basically sound exactly like they did in the 70s you know how they survive i don't know but they didn't fall into the 70s disco thing like a lot of bands did now they did get uh-huh. now they did get in when they got into the 80s they definitely changed and they started getting a lot more poppy in the 80s there's no question the about way it. the drum sound the drums are really yeah but everybody everybody had that 80s production sound though that wasn't just them that was just everybody. But I mean, like, just some of the songs, like, Dude Looks Like a Lady, and I mean, those are poppy songs. And so even some of the stuff on Pump, I love Pump, but there's a couple pop-sounding songs on that one. They never really tried to copy grunge. They never really tried to say, okay, this is, you know, now we're getting into emo, so we're going to be emo. They just always, pretty much for the most part, except for that time in the 80s, when every band had the same problem, <laughs> they really, pre- they really pretty much stayed pretty true to their sound. They didn't really get too far away from it, at least not in my opinion. I mean, yeah, their no. their sound has changed, you know, but I don't think they're, um, you know, they didn't go out and make a grunge album, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, like a lot of bands tried to do, you know, Metallica. They just kind of kept doing what they were doing. and It's weird, though, you know, because, you know, you have someone like, uh, you know, like Madonna, right? She, like, kind of, changed with the times you know and was able to do that and and also stayed popular and still is i mean i don't know if she really has any hits anymore but you know she stayed relevant to some degree so it's one of those things where it's like which which one do you choose do you just keep doing the same thing over and over again because you just like that or do you actually are you interested in evolving you know and um staying trying to stay relevant that way so it's an interesting formula I don't think you can really think about it, but, you know, people have died, their careers have died trying to change quite often, you know, and not being themselves. So it's like a scary thought. I think it's better to try to just be yourself and keep doing what you do well because you change and then you're just a big joke. (laughs) It's like, I wouldn't take that risk, that's for sure. So we had talked about uh, doing a show on the debut album of Guns N' Roses, at some point, um, but real quickly, out of the debut albums that I think are considered sort of the the best, um, you have Weezer's debut album, um, Pearl Jam 10. Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. I know. Uh, Black Crow's Shake Your Money Maker, great debut album. Yes. God, awesome. Uh, I'm trying to think of the ones that I like. I don't know what whatever the, the top are on the list or whatever, but I'm saying no, like you're, the ones you're that on I'm, the right track, definitely. I'm, the yeah. ones that I've always liked are the, uh, uh, Pearl Jam 10, Weezer's first one, um, Black Crow's first one, Shake Your Money Maker. Um, who else did I say? Uh, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Kiss's first album. Aerosmith's first album. Um, who are some? What are some other... I mean, I guess please, please me if we're going to count all of rock and roll. You've got, oh, Black Sabbath. Yeah, Led Zeppelin's first one. Led Zeppelin, yeah. 
Bleach is a great album. I don't dislike Bleach at all. I love Bleach. But I don't know if I'd put it on the iconic debut album list. You know, the hardest part, too, is is it, it, I think we have to figure out how we judge it. That's true. Obviously, obviously, the albums are good. All these albums mm-hmm. are good. But Appetite for Destruction versus Aerosmith's first album. Appetite for Destruction sold, is like the biggest seller debut besides like Hootie and the yeah. Bowfish, I think, or something like think, that. Yeah. But um, Aerosmith's first album never, never hit it. You know, it didn't didn't happen that way. So even though it's a great album, it's not like one of those like stellar, out of the gate hit debut album. And out of all those I just named, I would say I would probably put Aerosmith's debut album at towards the back of those. Like I think I like the first Black Crows album better. I think I like Guns N' Roses' Appetite better. Definitely, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, those I have to put because those are just Pearl Jam ten. I mean, that's uh, that's ahead of Aerosmith's debut album. It just is. I think it's too iconic, right? And Aerosmith's first album is not necessarily iconic. It's just their first album. Yeah, but I mean, I'm saying if I had to rank my favorite debut albums, I don't think I put Aerosmith's debut album anywhere near the top. Really, I mean, it's, yeah. it, I mean, it's like, I mean, I'd have to go down to about fifteen or sixteen or seventeen. Like, I, I'm putting "Please Please Me" ahead of 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 the debut album too just as far as my own favorites you know i'm trying to think of my i'm trying to think of my favorites that are debut albums and i'd say aerosmith's is it's all i love it i mean i listen to it a lot but i probably have a lot more debut albums from bands that like weezer's blue album i probably put that ahead of aerosmith's debut album yeah, too Yeah, definitely yeah not just in terms of like charting and sales but just in, in terms of like preference i just prefer i think those those first five out now if you took five the top five first albums of a band i'd probably put aerosmith's top first five albums ahead of almost anybody we promised to revisit aerosmith at some point i'd like to get into pump one of these days anyway hope you enjoyed the show thanks for listening and class dismissed <laughs>